0: Hi, I'm Andalisi.
1: And I'm Chef James Regato, and this is Essential Cooking.
0: In episode five, I interview my co host, Chef James Regato, and his friend and mentor, Chef Luciano del Signore, in which we talk about how Italy influenced them and their cooking, their favorite noodle, and what they like about each other's cooking. Do you guys prefer for, to cook for somebody or for somebody to cook for you?
2: I prefer to cook
1: for somebody. Yeah, I think honestly, it depends on who. Who we're talking Who's about? Doing the cooking? Yeah, I mean, if I'm a you know, <laughs> I like when Luciano cooks. I go to his house, so that's uh, that's definitely a benefit. But I think by nature, I feel more comfortable cooking for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and mean, that's like a, that's the jobs we got into.
0: Yeah, it, but it's nice when someone cooks. Oh for yeah, it.
1: but it, I think and they know what they're doing when a, you know it's gonna be good.
2: It's also another way to give, and yeah. it's a you know, when you're cooking for people who are not pros, you're giving them something. You're giving them a great experience. They can't cook for you in that light, and it's just good to
1: give. Yeah, but I also know Luch, and I'll tell you, like, if somebody's making food, like, especially with, you know, as you get older, like, you're much more health conscious. So if you see something like heavy mayonnaise or heavy fry, like, you know, that'll make him, you know, he'll he'll like you know, fake a an illness and leave the party, you know, like 100%. He can't eat. He can't eat crazy unhealthy globs of food. So right. that's usually why he's cooking is also because like too much butter, too much fat. Like, you know, he's really sensitive about that stuff.
0: Has your cooking changed as you have? Changed and gotten older, and you have more experience as your approach to cooking changed?
2: Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, you know, we pay more attention to food and um, farming and where our food is coming from. I think, you know, I started 39 years ago, and there wasn't a whole lot of choices out there. I mean, we dealt with big box grocers, and that's all we had. If you didn't have Cisco, you had GFS, or you had. You know these big names and then of course we had our produce companies downtown but there was i mean there was no such thing as organic non-gmo i mean we didn't even have those words or terms and uh so yeah i mean through all these years it's just gotten better and better and hopefully we'll continue to catch up with the rest of the world i think in in keeping our food cleaner because i think america is really behind the eight ball when it comes to clean food on this planet
1: wouldn't you say too that more trips to Italy once you became a chef, because obviously when you a kid, you'd go there and just have a good time and see culture and influence your family. But I think as you got older, I'd imagine that the you know the 40-year-old Luciano in Italy is paying attention to things differently than the, than the 15-year-old. No question. So as you come home and you're running Italian restaurants, you're like, it's not so much an Italian-American restaurant. Like maybe some of your items were pizzeria. You know, when you were a young kid, your dad's pizzeria. And yeah. Fontimore had definitely some, you know, some red sauce kind of vibes. But I think as you... As you got older and what I've seen it happen at Baco is that like the more true, clean Italian cooking is more at the forefront.
2: Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, especially like you said, when I was, a, um, you know, in my chefing career and already off and running. And then when you go to Italy and you would taste tomatoes coming off the vine or zucchini flowers that just had these amazing aromas and they eat only what's in season there you bring that home, you know, that's where I learned that seasonal cooking is like, you know, you don't buy asparagus all year round. You get asparagus in the spring and you eat artichokes in the spring. You don't buy artichokes in, in October just because they're available and maybe they grow in Chile in October. And, uh, you know, and they're more like hothouse asparagus or, uh, and uh, artichokes. So that's, you know, I learned a lot traveling to Italy with seasonal food.
0: What about when you went to Italy for the first time? What struck you about the way food is prepared and the way food is sourced, and it's a whole different deal than here, of course. But what struck you about it the
1: most? I think the blessing of that trip uh, was that we had it filmed. You know, so the dinner in Bruzzo film is—I is, can actually like reference my experience. I like could watch it and you know, to play out in real time. So that's that's pretty cool to actually go back and watch it. But the the cooking skill and the dining etiquette and the knowledge of the population is really what I find would be most most impressive. The average person walking around, you know, understands the importance of like what a mill does and like what local pasta, you know, should be the difference between fresh sheeted pasta or, you know, a die cast. Like just the really basics of food are understood on a, on a general population level there. So you can go to the mountains of Abruzzo on an afternoon. No one's around. You're off season. You can stumble into a little trattoria and it's incredible food. You know, and, and I think that, and even when the bars you go to it's the same three varieties of, of grape, you know, and all the wines, because that's the grape of the region and maybe in a fancy restaurant, you can get a bottle of champagne or something, but they just kind of drink the area's wine there. So it's a, it's a local seasonal sustainable vibe, but not by trend or by, you know, force. It's, it's just culture and it's just the way that things have always been. So it's like Luke said, it's a reminder that like, okay, this is, this is how food works. What we're doing here in America, we're, you know, we're like the world's satellite. You know, we don't, everyone's kind of sent here. We don't have like a really, especially for us, like, you know, growing up in, you know, for me, obviously growing up in the 80s and 90s and Lucha is a little bit older, but we're, we're very much Italian Americans, you know, so we grew up eating, you know, fast food and Italian red sauce and like we grew up seeing everything. So when you spend time in a country, you know, that has a 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 year old food history, you really, it, it hits you like a wave.
0: Luciano, has uh, your client base, the people that come to your restaurants, how have they changed over the years and their attitudes about food? Have people become more open-minded about what they're willing to try or are we not there yet?
2: I think they've gotten a little more educated on food, I think, for the most part. I think that, um, unfortunately, I think people should pay more attention to the ingredients that go into restaurants because it does make a difference. You know, if you're going to buy... You know an all-natural raised tenderloin for example it's going to cost you ten dollars a pound more than commodity beef and it's unfortunate that people just look at the price of the steak opposed to what the quality is i don't think people pay attention don't treat their bodies as the tombs that they are like this is your one body god has given you this is you need to care for you know and what goes in matters as much as they should I think that uh, there's a little too much price conscious because if you're going to deal with non-GMO, all natural products, the price is going to go up. And they do sometimes just compare my Italian restaurant with other Italian restaurants as the price of the pasta and the price of the steak as, the, you know, as price comparative. And that's not a fair thing to do. I mm-hmm. think you really need to pay attention.
0: And your approach to cooking, James, is, is your restaurant, the model of your restaurant is different. Um, When you were getting ready to do Mabel Gray, were you convinced that a changing menu, a constantly, a a menu that people, like I've gone to Mabel Gray a number of times, the menu's never been the same, unless I went twice in a week. Yeah. Um, Were you ever concerned that this was going to be difficult for people to accept? Like, I can't go online every, you know, you can go online and find the menu, but I can't see what's going to be there in two weeks.
1: Yeah, I think. You know, I did a big road trip before we opened the restaurant, and I, I did about 77 restaurants in about 28 days with Sam and I. We drove around the country because I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was, like, nationally relevant. And, you know, I, I guess I make sure I was ready for it. I wanted to see what other restaurants were doing that were similar-minded. And because I was, I was most concerned with, like, how could I keep up? I think I had enough creativity, but, like, that's a very aggressive pace for a chef in a restaurant with the staff. So the public, I, I made the restaurant small enough to where I thought that, like, okay, if we are, you know, if we do 60 covers a night, I could sustain. So sustainability was kind of the focus. And Mabel Gray was a blessing because it was, you know, successful and people came and really enjoyed it. So I think that it was busier than I expected, but I had to do it for me. I mean, I worked in a lot of restaurants and, you know, Lucha, I mean, he can vouch. He went on his own at 37 and opened up his own restaurant with his own menu. But when you work under someone else's menu and recipes for so long, you start to feel stifled. And it's it takes more effort to be creative, and you have to do it. It's like you got to push, you know. And I think that you see a lot of that. There's a lot of cooks out there that want to break through and don't know how, or can't, or you know can't afford to. And this was kind of my, you know, I kind of had to do Mabel Gray. It was like I just needed to get this out of my system. I needed to do a restaurant that had no rules and 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 no written menu. So I don't know. I think that I was mostly concerned with my pace and could I keep it up? Um, and I chose the small building and a low overhead for some artistic flexibility. So yeah, maybe if it wasn't a smashing success, we could be sustainable, pay the loan back, and I would have a, a fun art project to talk about. <laughs> but it definitely evolved into a, you know, a circus. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about the creative process. I mean, cooking is an art form. When you guys are gonna go create something new that you want to introduce to people, if you're a musician and you've been playing for years, you have all of this experience to draw on. And so you're going in with all these tools and you don't want to do the same thing. You're Bruce Springsteen. You want to do something different. Talk about that process when you've got a clean slate and you're going to start creating for other people. What's that like?
1: You know, I think for me, I get a lot of my inspiration from travel, which is obviously weird right now in the world, but um, also working with other chefs, you know, I I try, I try to host a lot of guest chefs at the restaurant. I mean, we've hosted dozens. I mean, some taking over for a full week, um, or sometimes just one dinner. But the more guest chefs, the more people I bring around, um, I learn so much from them. You know, from their walks of life or their backgrounds or you know their perspectives. So the com- camaraderie and the diversity are really their the best assets in the restaurant business. You know, from our staff to our customer base to the to our, to the, to our peers, I really try to tap into the the diversity and the camaraderie. Uh, That's around me, and that's where I learn the most.
2: Yeah, for me, it's um, you know, it's experiences. It's um, I love. um, I have a lot of cooks in my arsenal because I have a lot of restaurants, and and I sit and I meet with them on a regular basis, and we talk about seasonal ingredients. And I love to drag inspiration out of them and see what they can create and bring up, so that you you have some outside influences. And it always, you know, it's you have to start with the you know if it's a painting, it's the center of the, you know, the painting, the object, right? And for us, it's seasonal ingredients. And, you know, once you have some great seasonal ingredients, then you try to just spin them or utilize some past experiences or a flavor or, you know, cross pollinate, you know, things together to try to create your own take and version with that ingredient.
0: I want you two to talk about each other for a second here. What is it about James's cooking that you like them. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Most,
2: I love his creativity. I love his flavors. I think James is extremely balanced in his cooking, and you know it's, it's super high quality, and and it's always fresh and it's always new. And I just think I never find anything in his dish that's overpowering. That I can't find what's the most important thing on the plate, and that could be either the fish or the you know the meat or the vegetable principle, whether it be mushroom or, you know, everything he does, he seems to balance and season extremely well, and. And uh, I've always said he's one of the best upcoming chefs in in uh, Metro Detroit. And, it, and now he's pretty matured and uh, been around for a good long while.
1: Hi. Hey, thanks. That's very nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This, it's your turn. Yeah, I know. Jeez, is so sweet. For me, what's interesting with Luch is that he's been, he's been established my whole career. So, you know, I grew up eating at, you know, his, his father's restaurant. And then, I mean, I think I was maybe 20 when he opened Baco. So, I mean, I've been, Luch has kind of been like, you know, I've been cooking in his taillights, you know, cause I mean, he's always been a, a trailblazer and a godfather. And I, what I love, I mean, Luch eating at his restaurants is always fantastic. Cause it's top notch service, great wines, you know, dishes that I've come to love. I mean, I feel like I eat some of the same things every time I go there, the clams and spaghetti. Like there's a comfort level that you get almost like in going to like a, a grandparent's house, you know, like when I go to his restaurants, but also I've, I've, I've eaten a lot of his food that he cooks at home or when we travel. So I've been blessed to get a lot of that, like that more fresh out of the pan, you know, personality cooking. And, you know, when we roasted that baby goat at your house or pasta matcha Shana late night with all the chefs, like there's a soulfulness in Lucha's cooking that you can't. Even if I took the same ingredients and cooked it myself, I can't make it taste like that. You know, he's, he's got the soulfulness of, of, you know, someone way beyond his years. Like he cooks like a 90 year old Nona. And like there, that's something that you can't, you can't make up. So as restaurants, like I said, fantastic, classic dishes. I love them, but it's the home cooked magic that separates Luch from the rest of us. Wow.
0: How about that? You guys look very surprised by well, each other. I I'm going to
1: invite you over to my house for dinner tonight. Yeah. yeah it wouldn't be the first. Well, time. Someone's got to drive him there. So I guess I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite restaurant? And we can say in the country outside of Southeastern Michigan.
2: I always found that the seafood at La Bernardin has always inspired me to cook. And the simplicity of uh, Eric Repair's cooking and how he just focuses on the center of the plate, which is how I think to cook, I think he's done it better than anybody in the country. And... uh, and he stood the test of time and he's, you know, LaBernadette has got to be every bit of 25 years old. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know how old the restaurant is, but they've been around for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I hope they, you know, bust through the other side of this COVID thing and, and still become the pillar of, I think, the best quality seafood restaurant, you know, in America.
1: What about you? High praise. Dining is so much where you are, you know, because you can have the same meal twice and have a totally different experience. But for me... I got to go to Charlie Trotter's when I was 21. It was my first real fine dining. I had been to Tribute, but like, you know, Trotter's was on a different level than yeah, yeah. And Brilliant guy. I, I kind of feel like I ate there, at, um, you know, at the right time in my career and got the red carpet rolled out, got the wine pairing, you know, Charlie Trotter was there, got the full tour and just like, you know, the gift bag. It, that was the first time I ever was taken care of because I was industry. You know, like I didn't really know, I mean, it was a, you know, three Michelin star restaurant, you know, I don't even mean, $500 person meal, but we got extra courses. We got gift, you know, gifted books. We got, we got VIP treatment because we were industry. And I wasn't even, it wasn't even on my radar yet. Cause I was such a young cook, but, uh, that shifted my approach to hospitality. So I would say, you know, obviously it's closed down now, but Charlie Trotter's in its heyday and the talent that he had, I mean, that the kitchen crew that he had working for him, he was really, you know, I mean, kind of now regarded as a, Kind of a terrorist of a chef. I mean, people that worked for him, like, you know, went through hell. But the talent that came out of his kitchen is, you know, it's pretty uh, unrivaled. And it's fun because John Vermiglio actually worked there for a little while. So it's fun to share stories with Vermiglio because he, he sees both sides of the fence. Yes, he knows that the restaurant was crazy and Charlie Trotter was a madman, but he also saw the brilliance, too.
0: You just mentioned something about teaching and educating your chefs and the people you surround yourself with both of you have to deal with that both of you have to train the people that work for you what are the things that you ask of the people that work for you what is the most important things that you want your the people that surround you with to be thinking about when it comes to food
1: you know i mean for me i have a very small crew you know we, have, we, have, we have, that's a big question for two polar opposites and because i mean i have a crew now pre-co or post-covid i have i think 12 It's like my staff you know maybe maybe 13 so for my kitchen crew i really want integrity you know I, I preach that a lot i say you know there's a quote they all know the quote but it's like doing the right thing when no one's looking it's such an important thing in the world of food you know and that's what chefs are you know you trust in us blindly that i'm with i tell you that it's USDA Prime, it's USDA Prime. If I tell you this is a local apple, it's a local apple. So doing the right thing when no one's looking is probably the single most important thing. You know, sweeping and mopping, even if you're the last one in the building, and maybe I wouldn't notice if you did or didn't. And then when it comes to, like, you know, front of house, and, you know, I often say that, so the back of house is the integrity, which it goes everywhere, but that's the most important thing in food. But for hospitality, I always tell my front house team that um, hospitality is a gift. You know, like, you, can, you have to choose to give it. Nobody can buy hospitality. You cannot, I don't care if you, you, you can't, you know, billionaires can't get it. It has to be given to them. You cannot buy it. True hospitality is when someone, you know, takes care of you, anticipates your needs, waits on you, connects with you because they chose to. You know, it's not servitude. It's not somebody working for a tip. It's true, you know, connection and desire to please and anticipate needs. And so when you give hospitality because you want to, it's a, it's a far different experience than just paying for service.
2: And for me, you know, I try to uh, instill in my chefs that, you know, hospitality is just important in the kitchen as it is in the front of the house. And what that really means is we have to try to accommodate the true bosses, my boss, which is the customers. And if they want have special dietary requests or restrictions or allergies or, you know, it's just somebody that wants a simple piece of grilled you know fish and steamed veggies that we have to be yes people and try to accommodate those special requests and that that's part of the hospitality game that they need to be, um, you know, just as, as focused as the front of the house with taking care of customers. And because they think they're in the back of the house, that they're not part of the hospitality team, but they really are.
0: Do you either, either of you have a favorite thing that you would make for yourself at home? Mm. that you like to cook and like to eat for yourself.
2: For me it's simplicity. I mean, I don't eat pasta as much as I would like to just because of the the carb factor and I'm always watching my weight and always trying to make it. but I mean the simplest of summer ripe tomatoes, you know, into a simple marinara sauce with pasta, I'm pleased like just done well, few ingredients. That yeah, makes me happy.
1: I totally agree, but I'd rather have him make it for me than me. <laughs> But for me, me for me at home, like my, my problem, I think for feeding myself is like, I like spicy food so much that like, I, if I fed myself, I would never not be eating chilies. Like I I would have an ulcer. Like I, if I'm going to physically make myself food, I make it, I just love spice. And I feel like there's like a euphoric element of really dining with, with high, high heat. And I'm just, I'm hooked. I cannot feed myself. I can't make myself just like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'd put like chilies on it. I'm just like, I can't stop.
0: Oh my gosh, it would be joyful to eat pasta every day.
2: My family in Italy, they eat pasta every single day. I would say most every day. I mean, obviously in the winter sometimes they'll have soups, but if they have a soup, half of them might have a pasta <laughs> in it. And, um, or like risotto but, or gnocchi. But yeah. they, they treat it differently, right? They eat the right amount of pasta and they eat it at the right time of day. They never have pasta late, at yeah. that late night meal. you know. In Italy, the big meal is the one o'clock in the afternoon meal. And pastas in the middle, and they eat the right size. You know, fifty grams of pasta, and You're and then they and yeah. You go for a walk but then and, they yeah. yeah, they're gonna walk it off, and they eat it every day. Yeah. Um. You know, we have treated in America, people treat pasta as their main meal. You know, they get it as the dish. You know, they'll have a salad or an appetizer, and they want to just eat this. It's different when you get a big bowl of pasta. You know, but I think you can have it every day, little.
1: I mean, I feel like I. Eat pasta almost every day. That's my most consumed product by a mile. I eat pasta almost every single day.
0: Really? I mean, I have
1: it on the menu at Mabel all the time. And, like, I mean, yeah, I feel like... Or if it's not pasta, it's like, you know, Thai noodles. I mean, like, I, eat, I eat a noodle, like, every single day.
0: What's your favorite noodle?
1: I mean, you know, the applications are so vast, but, like, pockery is probably the world's greatest noodle because yes. you can just, like, it's a, you, can, you can take it and you can go vegan with it. It can handle the craziest, heaviest sauce... And it can literally also just be like, you know, your vegan cauliflower that you do with it. Like yeah. Luch boils cauliflower. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Was like he boils pockery. It's so basic. That's why it's so cool. It's not, I'm not gonna blow your mind here. <laughs> olive oil, a little chili. I don't think you had a garlic, but I would. No, I did have garlic. Yeah, okay. Oh, a yeah. little bit of garlic and chili and olive A little bit. Yeah. in an olive oil sauce, like warming. And then you boil pockery and halfway through the pockery maybe even like a couple minutes, yeah, yeah. about t- almost 10 minutes of boiling, you add huge chunks of cauliflower in with the noodles. And what happens is the pockery becomes tender, the cauliflower becomes almost mushy. Yes. And then you lift it out of the basket, you dump it in the pan, and the cauliflower breaks, and it's so wet, and that it like c- mixes with the olive oil and becomes like a sauce. So you're eating this like, it's rich, it's unctuous, it almost tastes like creamy. So you're eating a, like vegan, Pasta dish that's a little spicy, a little garlicky, but creamy. And you can add cheese if you want, it oh, doesn't yeah. have to be vegan, but it's a you know, it's a head of cauliflower, some dried noodles, a little olive oil, garlic, and chili. I mean, it's like a six dollar meal, and it's delicious. What's wonderful about Pacari is like the ma- he makes pasta, the with Pacari, which is obviously the guanciale, which is so smoky and salty, tomatoes, and onions, and cracked pepper. And typically, it's bucatini when you go to a machi or abruzzo, but that Pacari handles that too, so like you know like softened cauliflower all the way to like the smokiest, you know, pig jowl. It's a, it's the noodle can handle anything. It's really like the most versatile, delicious filling noodle you can eat. It's like a big fat, no ridged rigatoni. Yeah. Spaghetti is also a really dope noodle that does not get enough love. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like, it's, it's known as like the noodle, but as, as far as like menus and stuff, you don't see a whole lot of spaghetti. And I think spaghetti is a fantastic noodle.
2: Yeah.
0: Why isn't that? why aren't people using it? I just think
1: it's people think of it as being played out or like it's so poorly made so often that people like you know don't want to order the spaghetti, but the physical shape of the noodle and the way that it like holds sauce and fits on a fork, I mean, it's it's a perfect noodle. Spaghetti is perfect. all right. so we got some fun questions we've been asking everybody, okay, so um what food is always in your refrigerator?
2: I would say always um cured meats cured yeah meats. yeah you always find guanciale pancetta salami pr- you know prosciutto always cryovac ready to go
1: yeah all right so you gotta eat at a fast food restaurant which one is it taco bell yeah. and what is your single favorite music artist tom petty surprising to say Pavarotti or something yeah
2: no <laughs> it's not Pavarotti. i mean i love it,
1: is that your name say? i love andrea bocelli
2: <laughs> and i love all those but i would say tom petty